Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to William Germano about his book, Getting It Published, a guide for scholars and anyone else serious about serious books, published by University of Chicago Press in its third edition in 2016. I can't imagine a book whose stated aims coincide more closely with the stated aim of this podcast. I quote, For those who work as editors and publishers, nothing could be better than for authors to have this information at their fingertips. Exactly. And we're not talking here about trade secrets and the hush-hush of someone who's broken loose. No, it's the stuff all academics, from freshmen to the upper echelons of the university, all of them should know. Why? Well, there's the practical reasons of landing a job, being granted tenure. But there's the farther-reaching reasons, like what do the humanities contribute to our society? What is the shape of ideas in one or other subfield of the social sciences? How does an academic discipline decide whether research counts as knowledge or not? I'm not going to answer these questions. Even William Germano leaves definitive answers to future thinkers. However, there is one thing, one actual object, which is in itself an answer, and that, of course, is the book. Getting it published is, indeed, as the subtitle announces, a guide. And it's a guide in two senses. First, the book is a tour of the industry and a tour all the more live and active for the style of the writing. You might say William Germano's prose makes an excellent guide. The reader walks in the acquisitions editor's office, peers over the copy editor's shoulder, watches the fireworks of marketing. The reader leaves the book having been there. And so when it's his or her own manuscript that's entering the process, the reader has been there. Getting it published is a guide, too, in the sense of a reference work, though this means something else in publisher parlance. You'll find out when you read the book. This third edition has all the facts for right now, and it has all the pointers for right now. Facts and pointers on book proposals, book exhibits, book contracts, book reviewers, book submission, and everything else book. Your questions shall be answered. William Germano has heard his career described as non-traditional, though I don't think that any Generation Z would bat an eye. William Germano took his PhD in English and soon entered publishing, working at Columbia University Press and then serving as vice president for editorial in New York at Routledge. That is William Germano, the publisher, who he was for over 25 years and who has written apart from getting it published, today's focus, also the book, From Dissertation to Book. Both works have gone into multiple editions. The scholar William Germano was Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Cooper Union for over 10 years, before now becoming the teacher William Germano, professor at the College for the Freshman Corps, and other wide-ranging electives. These three William Germanos combined to make the ideal author of a book that wants to guide the scholar through publishing. William Germano knows what publishers want, knows too what scholars want, and knows how to guess, educatedly, at what students want. Getting it published, subtitled as it is A Guide for Scholars and Anyone Else Serious About Serious Books, could not have a more qualified author. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, has the aim of showing just how research gets published, a podcast about how knowledge gets known. Everyone from first-year college students to tenured professors 
knows what research looks like because they either have been taught or have themselves taught how to do it. The same cannot be said about publishing. Scholarly communication wants to help change that. Scholarly communication wants to reveal to researchers and readers alike just how essential communication is to their research because we believe that communication improves when people understand how communication happens. We believe too that research improves when researchers better understand their role as authors. So let's begin today's episode. William Germano and his book, Getting It Published. Bill, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thanks, Daniel. I'm delighted to be here and have the chance to speak with you and and with our listeners. I just wanted to um, get us, uh, kick us off with uh, uh, an opportunity for you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came uh, to writing this book. Thanks for that. I was working at Routledge which was my second big publishing job. And it occurred to me that I had a lot of practical knowledge, experience from working with many authors, but also with working with my colleagues, my colleagues in production, in marketing, in promotion, in sales, and that this was all a piece and a piece that was pretty well hidden from most scholars, from most professional academics. I had been invited to give a number of talks about what publishing was like. I was also on the conference circuit. I would be at conferences as an exhibitor, but sometimes I would be active as a scholar on on uh, scholarly panels and so on. And sometimes I would organize panels with other publishers in order to, as it were, educate audiences about what publishers really do. And finally, in the late 90s, I decided, okay, I should try to put all this together because I couldn't find anything out there that I could point my authors to. And so the book developed as the guide it is in order to break apart the mystery of publishing for people who weren't publishers, but who needed to know about exactly how publishing works. I wanted to to dispel some misconceptions, but I also wanted to use the book as an opportunity to help scholars and to help them by teaching them stuff. One of the big issues for me in terms of laying all this information out was discovering what very, very, very smart people didn't know about their own work. The classic example I have, and I wish it were fictional, is the author who delivers a 400-page manuscript. And when asked what it's about, exclaims what it's about, read it and you'll see. That might be a uh, understandable defensive move on an author's part, but it's not at all useful for a publisher. One of the difficulties of working with academics, and there are many, many pleasures, is that most academics are by nature specialists, and they are trained as specialists to speak to specialists. That is fine for scholarly journals, and in fact, it's it's essential to the way scholarly journals operate. But books, most books, most books published by scholarly houses operate on a different wavelength. And what I wanted to do in this book was to make that the, the terms under which publishers decide what they're going to do more visible to authors and thereby making it easier for people to make the right decisions about their own work. Uh, I wanted to make clear that uh, publishing is not a mystery. It's not a conspiracy uh, and it's not a party game. The people who work in publishing, especially the audience, rather the, the, the cohort of individuals who work in scholarly publishing, 
which is by and large the the other half of the the collaboration uh, with the audience for this book, that is scholars work with scholarly publishers for the most part, uh, that those people are themselves professionals. And that the, the first the first step, I think, in understanding how publishing works is for scholars, academics, to recognize the professional capacity and responsibilities of the people on the other side. So there's a certain amount of teaching about what these other professionals who are not you are actually doing. And and that's been a pleasure. The other thing that uh, I need, I should say, and perhaps I should have started with this, is that things have changed since I first published. And since I published the first edition of this book, um, it came out in 2001. This is the third edition, and if one tracked the changes in the editions, and there's no reason anyone should do this, they would see that I've de-emphasized certain things because certain things are no longer as important, and I have emphasized, I think quite understandably, the uh, the rapid, the accelerating move towards digital dissemination. People do not send in hard copy and receive back hard copy uh with correction, with uh, edit, with the editing, and then get long strips of printed out page proof. This is the way publishing um, operated not so long ago, maybe forty years ago. Every almost everything now is being done uh, through one's computer, but that doesn't change the essence of the of the project. One still needs to conceptualize a, a book project in a way that is meaningful to the author, to the author's field, and to the specific individuals who might buy it. I like to make the somewhat grumpy observation that there are for-profit publishers and not for, and there are not-for-profit publishers, but there are no for-loss publishers. That even university presses, with, who are uh, constitutionally not-for-profit organizations, uh, have an obligation not to run into the red, or at least not too far into the red. Uh, the red needs to be uh, mopped up by university budgets, and right now that's it's unusually difficult moment. Um, all of this means that publishers are going to choose the work they want to bring out with great care, and for that to happen, authors need to understand what those principles of care are. We could talk in all sorts of ways about what this book is about, but let me just sort of uh, provide a, uh, uh, an end of a long phrase here by saying that one of the principles in the book and one of the principles I've developed over the years as a teacher is that you don't really know what you think until you try to write it down. This is a principle I use when I'm teaching uh, first-year college students, but that principle is absolutely opposite to chaired professors who were specialists at major universities. To embrace that idea puts you into a perspective, puts you into a position where you are an explorer and not simply downloading what's in your brain. This idea that I don't know what I think, I don't know what I think until I try to, until I write it down. Then the language takes shape and the ideas emerge. You don't know what you know until you try to write it. It's an idea that I, didn't originate with me, surely. Um, among the very smart people I've had an opportunity to work with, one stands out. Um, and uh, I'm thinking now of Donna Haraway, the feminist historian of science, 
who's a professor at UC Santa Cruz. I frequently return to Haraway as the example I can, I can most quickly recall of someone who said to me, when I begin a sentence, I don't know how it's going to end. That's not a koan or an other sort of mystical observation. I think it's a it's a on the ground truth of writing, and it's it's it is as true for freshmen as it's true for uh, professional scholars who are working through their work. All of this adds up to uh, an obligation that scholars not only work through as rigorously as possible the problem they're trying to uh, investigate but also find a way of explaining it and why it matters. And that might be the launching point for another series, another series of questions and responses. Yes, uh, very much is. Um, would you find fair the rephrasing of this, uh, which I've heard from many uh, different corns as well, this idea of you don't know what you uh, think until you write it down. Would you, would you think that in the publishing industry, a, a rephrasing along these lines would also be true? You don't know what you're going to publish until an editor understands it? Oh, that's scary. Uh, it may be right. It may be right. I, I, one of the points I've made over the years um, in, in the, the editions of this book and also um, in the other work I've been, the other writing that I've been doing about publishing and writing uh, is that you're really writing for a series of audiences. And the very, very first audience you're writing for is an editor. And the editor is almost absolutely going to be someone who doesn't have your training. You know, even if you know, I'm a, I, I'm a professor of English, I'm going to be submitting my work to a publisher. I don't necessarily need someone who has a PhD in English to be reading my work at a publishing house because that person will have her or his own specialty. And there is no reason to assume that it connects with mine. As a matter of fact, I uh, I won't name the name, but a, the a, a now now retired distinguished uh, director of a distinguished university press once said to me that I'll, I'll make this person he because I don't want to specify a gender, but forgive me for doing that. Um, that uh, he would he would hire someone with a PhD to be an acquiring editor, but would not let that person be an acquiring editor in that in in the editor's own field. So if you were a PhD in sociology, you might be asked to uh, to be the editor for um, uh, Asian studies or. English lit or or something outside of sociology would be the point, so that there wouldn't be a confusion of of professional skills. Uh, having said that, I want to reemphasize um, the fact that publishers have professional skills. Their professional skills are as publishers, whatever their educational background might be. The the editorial the the assistant editor who's been working for two years at a publishing house already knows more about publishing than the professor who is a internationally distinguished, recognized scholar in her field who has no background in publishing. And it's not only a generational thing, but it's a way of my point is that I want to encourage people to see a complementary uh, and collaborative expertise between the scholar writer and the editor publisher, that one recognizes the other's professionalism, skill set, knowledge base, and crucially, capacity to come together with the other person 
in order to create this object that contains knowledge and brings it to large audiences. Yeah, I'm hearing very clearly uh, this idea of professionalism. It's almost like uh, the position of many writing centers inside of universities for the other disciplines to recognize that there is a writing studies and that that contributes directly to people's research is, in a sense, if I'm understanding you correctly, the same thing that's going on in the area of publishing, that these professionals, these editors, who you, as you say, um, I think you even mentioned later in the book at some point that um, an editor can edit anything. I mean, you've just made the point that it's better for them to even be outside of their their field, but give them any text <laughs> and they'll know how to do it. Um, so this recognition that the publishing industry, in the publishing industry, you'll get in good hands and it's good to let yourself be led for to a degree. And it's also good with your book here, getting it published, uh, to, to know what's going on there and what it is that, uh, what they actually do as one of your chapters is actually even called, what do publishers do? It, it, I, I think when I wrote that, I was thinking of Richard Scarry's children's book, What Do Busy People Do All Day? And there was a moment <laughs> when I thought you know, we could have little illustrations, but we, did, we didn't take that route. I have to say, I'm really glad you brought up writing centers because I'm uh, in, in, thinking, in thinking alive here uh, with you about publishing today. I was reflecting on what the, the condition of writing centers might have been like 20 years ago. Um, my sense, and I'm not a professional, I'm not a professional writing, uh, writing center director. Uh, my sense though, is that over the last 20 years, there has been an increased recognition of the need to train people who already have high level skills in those skills that they don't have. And that includes allowing, um, uh, academic s uh, environments to foster spaces, uh, where, uh, this kind of learning can take place. Uh, there are frequently writing centers would be the people who would bring me in to talk, um, as a guest. I've done this, uh, in lots of, um, I wouldn't say most of the maybe I have most of the states of the United States and and in a half a dozen and a half a dozen foreign countries as well. I've I've always worked in English uh, in, in in the English language, even uh, even working in um, in uh, non Anglo non Anglophone uh, uh, spaces because the people I was uh, speaking to were largely using English as the lingua franca of their scholarly research. But uh, the idea that we, we certainly have made progress, I think, over the last 20 years, people know much more now than they did even, I think, a decade ago about what editors are looking for, what publishers need, and how to uh, accelerate the exchange of that information. Part of it is that publishers, I think, have done a much better job. They've created websites where you could go and quickly find out what the ground rules are going to be for submission. We're not looking for books in this. These are the documents that you should you should submit. And of course, you don't have to tie you don't have to tie a, a, a heavy box of paper together with a with a string and put it into the mail and hope for the best. You're going to you're going to prepare an electronic file and send it off. That has its own drawbacks, of course. But the very first uh, the very first uh, hurdle is going to be, how do I make the connection? Uh, and it's much, much easier to do that now. Having said that, though, we're still back to, can an author explain what her book is? And if I can just rephrase that, why her book is? What is the reason that that book, that manuscript exists? 
that may be the central question. Why does this exist? Uh, I have said as gently as I can that no one will publish your work merely because you're smart. And um, this is, uh, and the, the question of smartness is always a painful one. Academia is ex- full of extraordinarily smart people, but that doesn't necessarily mean they've figured out what an interesting problem looks like and a problem that would be interesting to an identifiable audience and a reachable audience. I, I have repeatedly said over the years, you don't want to present to your publisher a project you say that is for anyone who, that from, a, from an editor's perspective, may be the signal that the author really doesn't understand what the project is for. So if, if your listeners can make one change in the way they're positioning their work, I would say that. Figure out who you think you're writing for. And um, and test drive that. Talk to people you know, people who have read some of your work, and ask them, do you think that the questions I'm raising in my work would be of interest to uh, urban sociologists, people who are working on uh, the problem of water purity in developing countries? Those are direct questions, and they are exactly the questions that a publisher must answer internally before making the commitment financially and, as it were, politically in terms of investing the, the organization's uh, resources in getting a project out into the world. Uh, at Scholarly Communication, we've had a recent interview with uh, Catherine Conrad. This year is uh, president of the Association of University Presses. And much of what she said has certainly meshed with um, what you've been telling us. Uh, but I'm interested in this this different nuance that she's given it and what you would also have to say about that. Uh, you spoke uh, to the... Um, the for-profit, the not-for-profit, but there being no for-loss. And uh, the emphasis that Catherine Conrad has given it is that at any university press, you're going to meet a team of dedicated people, people who are just fascinated by new research and are uh, really going to be sort of moving along many different projects because they just believe in them. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that that angle that she gives to this topic. <laughs> Yeah. The first thing I would say is be really nice to everybody who works at a publishing house. I I can't emphasize that enough. There are are a few individuals out there and you may have uh, you may have someone in mind in your in your own sphere who always wants to speak just to the person uh, they feel is the most important, the most powerful person within an organization. I, I always feel sorry for people like this because they so misunderstand what collaborative work is like. The editorial assistant who picks up the phone may be an editorial assistant, but she or he is able to make things happen and make connections that you depend upon. So there is absolutely no reason not to be really, really nice to people, even if you're never going to meet them, even if you only have one, con- one connection with them at a publishing house. My own sense is, as you describe what Kathy Conrad has said, uh, publishing houses are, uh, especially scholarly houses, are filled with people who want to be, in some sense, connected with ideas. Um, it's a horrible job market. It's, uh, it's uh, Publishing doesn't pay particularly well. Uh, but it is an opportunity to be exposed to the work and enthusiasm of really smart authors and and colleagues who can get excited about working with those projects. 
there, there is for many people who work in scholarly publishing in all parts, in production, in, in uh, fulfillment, in sales, in marketing, a sense of mission. It's not merely we're going to make uh, so-and-so's bestseller even better than her last bestseller. That's usually not the terms in which those conversations take place. But there is, to use words uh, that are slightly charged, there is a sense of uh, intervention, of creating new paradigms, of writing new terms into culture, of providing language that allows for change, for movement, for the rethinking of what we imagined we knew. This is where the work of scholarship is creative. Every time something gets reconceptualized or a a misconception is refuted, every time new analytic tools and new methodologies are brought to bear on what we thought we understood, an important shift is taking place. I think that kind of change and that capacity for change, the capacity for the the opportunity rather to participate in that capacity for change is a driving force for the person who comes and says, you know, I really would, I'd love to work here. I'd love to be an assistant and work for not very much money in the marketing department and then perhaps have the opportunity to, to move up and in some cases wind up being the director of the press. Just as a sidebar, I, I'm thinking back uh, during our conversation, I've been thinking back of, uh, at uh, editorial assistants and marketing assistants and so forth um, who I worked with over the years. Uh, several of them are directors of university presses. Uh, I, uh, several, several of them are tenured professors. Uh, their, um, uh, their trajectory is not necessarily uh, a foregone thing, but I'd like to believe that they moved uh, along their career paths in part because of the work they were exposed to when they were working in publishing and saw at the ground level not that the not that uh, the great and the good of academia were ordinary ordinary but very smart people who could make the same mistakes that anybody could make and who, who may not be able to uh, proofread a manuscript or follow directions that 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 part is just sort of uh, just sort of the fun aspect of it, but really to be able to immerse oneself in the ideas. Um, in, in my own case, I, I think of myself as a generalist, even though my business card says I'm an English professor. Um, and I, I, I like to think that the, 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 uh, the arc of publishing justice uh, tends towards the generalist, that what you really want is someone who's a specialty specialist in, let's say, sociology, but who knows an enormous amount about things outside of sociology, who's able to connect with questions of food and race and child raising and urban, uh, the arts in an urban environment, things that might look as if they are only peripheral to a myth, to an analytic model that might be at the heart of a sociological study. In other words, once taking one's specialty and locating it as the core of an, ex- an exploration of how humans live their lives. I learned more in publishing than I did in graduate school. 
and um, that that that's um, I think testament to the way in which if you if you're if you're fortunate enough as I was to work at two publishing houses with a lot of with a lot of range and a lot of really smart authors and 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 colleagues who were very committed, you will have exposure over and over and over again every single day to something that was you knew nothing about. Um, it's not a kind of philosophical game. It's simply the practical reality. You have to be able to make decisions really quickly. Is Does this feel like something that people in, the, in, in a specialized field and then beyond will be interested in? Uh, but I, it, it was sort of like getting a second PhD without having to write a, a thesis in some sort of generalized sense of the humanities and the social sciences. Um, I think a lot of people in publishing feel something like that. I watch the work that um, many of my colleagues uh, do as directors of university presses or as uh, editors at university presses. And you sort of sit back and you say, how, how did they know? How were they able to identify those people? And part of that is about is a function of having really, really good ears uh, and knowing who to ask for advice and then having really good judgment. And that those things, I think, uh, turn on editorial instinct. I mean, in the book, I, I import the, the German word Fingerspitzengefühl into the, the, my explanation of what it means to decide that something is worth publishing. Uh, it's instinct, and instinct is something that you build up and learn and train. It, I don't think it's magic. Um, but you bring skills that allow you to have that uh, capacity to to learn and grow as an editor, as a marketer, as someone in promotion, as someone in in, fulf- in fulfillment. Even you you're looking for you're looking for people who want to be connected to books because books are exciting, and what they find in it is somehow resonant for them in their own lives. Um, I don't think I don't know that I've answered your question, but I wanted you, to have an you, opportunity you have. to say that. <laughs> and, and you've mentioned one of my favorite words in the um, in the book, uh, which I, I definitely want to come back to. I, my listeners will know I, I work in Germany. Fingerspitzengefühl is is <laughs> one of those fantastic words that, as you say, translates roughly as instinct and knowing how to get in there or whatever it might be. Um, I, I do want to come back that way, to, to that uh, when we talk more about editors, which is uh, something that really fascinated me and seemed to be one of the key players when it comes to the uh, scholarly author, um, him or herself. Uh, but just on this education that you received at your time uh, during your time there at the different houses, um, what I keep hearing is, I'm going to quote a line that occurs very early on in the book. What I keep hearing is this, that scholarly publishing is a big, noisy conversation about ideas that shape our world. And uh, you've said this now in so many words again, but there is this idea when it comes to communication generally, and definitely communication in the disciplines, that you're communicating to a community. And the metaphor of a conversation is often picked up as the way that uh, where best to imagine how do I address, how do I garner attention, how do I make valuable or important what it is that I'm trying to say, and so on. 
Um, and it seems like the real conversation, not only the metaphorical, is actually happening in the publishing industry. And it's almost a good idea to open this up to uh, uh, the universities. I mean, there are university presses which are also lodged in universities. That makes sense. Um, could you perhaps talk a bit more about this idea, the metaphorical or the real uh, idea of a conversation? I, th- I think one of the – well, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I am an unabashed partisan and a cheerleader for the university press community. Uh, some of the most um, brilliant and hardworking members of higher education are uh, employed at university presses. And uh, by definition, none of them are tenured professors. I suppose it could be an example of a professor who was brought in uh, as, uh, as a director of, the univers- of, of that university press. But it would be very. It'd be a very, very rare thing. Um, they are employees of a of a company, uh, as uh, anyone who is not in a tenured position, uh, or not working um, uh, either in a uh, in a tenured slot or in a tenured track slot will understand. Uh, and in that sense, um, they are subject to all the uh, all the vagaries of, uh, of the economy, and in some cases, the politics of individual states. Um, the the sorry, I, I haven't quite lost my train of thought, but there's something that I did want to say, and I wrote a little note down to myself. And and this might be the controversial the controversial bit. Um, I, I so strongly believe in the intellectual life of a scholarly publishing house. And I've I've known known thousands of academics and probably several hundred people who work in scholarly publishing, if not more. Um, It is very possible to have a richer intellectual life working in a scholarly publishing house than working as a tenured professor somewhere. And I, I think that's a function of the, uh, sadly, it's a function of the increasingly challenging environment of higher ed, uh, the, the, the constraint of resources and opportunities that are placed upon so many professional uh, members of the academy. And frankly, many places are just very, very tough places in which to teach. If you're working at a university press or other scholarly house, because Routledge was an academic academic house, um, but it was a commercial one, um, and still is. I, I'm using the past tense in relation to myself, not in relation to the house. Uh, it, it, you're, um, you're you're bombarded. You're bombarded with ideas, and you, that's great for some people. It's not great for everybody. Uh, but if you're willing to do that and willing to um, permit yourself to be stimulated by these things, you you grow in all sorts of ways. Uh, I published incredibly difficult thinkers, who many of whom established new paradigms and changed uh, conversations in fields. I've never, I didn't study them when I was in graduate school because their work came along after that. Um, and I'm proud of having done it, but it, it's not as if I'm a specialist in what they did. Uh, it, this gets to the, one of the, one of the tricky, the tricky pa- term pairs, uh, in contemporary culture, certainly in higher ed, and that is professional and amateur. Um, I can be a professional publisher, but I'm really an amateur in a whole bunch of fields and being able to, uh, being able to hold those two things in balance, I think is, 
exactly what has to happen if you're working within a publishing house. Um, I'm, I'm especially happy that we have, at least in, in the United States, because I, I don't know the, the European model as, nearly as well. I know the model in certain countries, but I can't speak for uh, in any global sense. I'm, I'm happy that there are so many uh, scholarly houses in, in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada. Um, because there is a need for um, the sort of the informed particularity that can emerge from a community. And uh, so that we're then able to um, not only to give voice to lots of different kinds of people writing on lots of different kinds of projects, but to inflect that voice in different kinds of ways. We don't want one homogenized, internationalized version of history or one homogenized, internationalized version of labor studies. These things only become useful to us when they're written by real people and when they have a sense that the document that is produced and disseminated has a human being behind it. I, I, I err on the side of, uh, I've always erred on the side of urging, uh, especially my, my, my social scientist friends, to find a way of bringing their presence into their work uh, and not to be caught in the trap of, of imagining that the best scholarship is a scholarship that is utterly neutral, whatever that might mean, and is somehow sanitized from, from, human, from human production. Everything we do is a human production. And it's, it's a point that I, want, that I always, urge, always urge with authors. Um, you don't have to make it autobiographical, but you, you want to be present. And you do that through your tone. You can do that through the, the way you approach your subject. And you can do that also by recognizing the voices of others, uh, not only other scholars, but also the subjects that you interview. I, I'm, I'm very keen on having human voices appear in the books we produce. I know those are the books I like to read the most. And I, my sense is that people really enjoy finding the human touch uh, in any sort of a book, whether it's a, whether it's a dire warning about uh, economic uh, disaster or whether it's an appreciation of, uh, of uh, endangered um, a rare species or simply a, an argument about what might have happened, <clears throat> you know, what might have happened in uh, the Hanseatic League. I can very much follow uh, what you say, uh, as you as you as you noted it, your controversial point of being in a publishing house or being a tenured professor. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. In fact, it sounds to me a bit like the publishing world is almost like the university of yore before we had ultra specialization and where people could sp still speak to each other, if you like. Um, you noted clearly that there's things that are administratively and financially going on in, in universities that are not making it necessarily the conducive place it should be to scholarship. Uh, but would you perhaps also name that trend towards specialization as being something that uh, is perhaps contributing to the lackluster life as opposed to what's going on in the uh, publishing houses. I suppose what I'm thinking, if I can follow it up with a second question to get you, <laughs> get you thinking even more, is that when you're talking about a voice coming out of a book, it um, makes me notice that the scholarly book and the nonfiction book 
can approach each other, or if these two categories even necessarily need to meet and uh, need to mean anything. I, I'm I'm glad you brought up that because that's something I've been thinking a lot about uh, in the last several years. Is that uh, scholarship is a particular kind of nonfiction, and if which sounds like it's sort of an insane thing to say, but if, if one sort of sort of calms down and and, and imagines, uh, okay, I'm a <clears throat> I'm an anthropologist and I'm working on the problem of uh, uh, the way uh, unclean uh, uh, the the absence of uh, the the lack of access to to clean drinking water uh, um, reshapes and deforms uh, communities. I'm, I'm completely making this up because I'm not an anthropologist. Um, but uh, that is uh, that's a form of nonfiction. Um, I, I don't know how far a, a, any individual discipline would be comfortable taking that <laughs> as a rule of thumb. I, my guess is that certain disciplines would say, "Yeah, that's true for some of our authors and and not for others," and and I'm okay with that. But I I like. I like pressing scholars uh, to reconsider what are frequently the self-imposed limitations of scholarly communication. You know, who says that you can't X? Who says that you can't Y? When a when a, a when a freshman student asks me, "Can I use the first person in this essay?" I, I, it's you know, I feel I feel a little I feel a little sad that someone has told this student. If it's a real essay, you can never have a you can never use a, f- a first person pronoun. Um, there are there are so many ways in which uh, I think authors, uh, scholars in particular, uh, think that they are following the rules, uh, and without thinking about what those rules are and why they're there, uh, and whether or not those rules really help them articulate their own ideas and and build what they want to build. Um, I'm quite fond of rule-breaking books, um, mainly because I think we're all looking for ways of thinking afresh. And sometimes that means doing something unexpected on the page. Um, there was another point I... I may come back to it. I do want, I do want to pick up on this, this idea of self-imposed, where the student comes to you and says, may I speak in the first person? Uh, that sort of thing goes on up throughout all of academia. Uh, what is it that I'm allowed to do? What is the genre? What is okay? What is not okay? I would almost argue that uh, obviously immediately it's self-imposed, but on the larger level, it's coming from a certain culture. And it's really, in a very provocative sense, a sort of indoctrination, as if science could only occur in one voice. This is something that you mentioned uh, earlier. And clearly, that's then not the case. If we're thinking in areas of this is nonfiction, this is scholarly, the boundary doesn't matter, then science speaks in many voices. But one problem area that arises for me is uh, you say also in the book that in the humanities, clearly, the book is where scholarship goes to. And the social sciences also quite clearly we're talking about book publications, despite the fact that the initial research is probably heading out into uh, um, journals. But when we get over into the hard sciences, as they're called, the natural sciences, to be more precise, 
we have an entirely different culture. We have a culture that doesn't seem to be conducive to books, but my, and, and, and these people do find themselves under heavy constraints generically, you know, as far as the forms that they're writing in to get it right. But I wonder, uh, is there something that we can tell them? Is there something that uh, publishing could, uh, beyond the journals that they're publishing in, or even the journals that they're publishing in, could tell them that uh, there are other ways that you may also A, B, and C? This is a big lift, the question of the, question of the sciences and uh, in, in, the, in, the current, uh, in the current climate, we hear about STEM fields. Um, and it's probably true that all of the disciplines gathered under that uh, rubric are operating on reasonably similar principles. The journal is the core uh, means of disseminating uh, scholarly research, and the emphasis is on research. Uh, collaborative work, uh, one knows, of course, that Technical scientific work might have a whole uh, line, uh, a whole uh, a line of texts uh, devoted to the various names of the authors of a, of a scholarly article, and the order, the, the order of importance, your placement in that line, is very significant in terms of the way it is received and what credit you get for the work you've done. You want to be first or you want to be last? <laughs> I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah, that's, that's how it is. <laughs> the, uh, the um, one thing I've never done is I've never, I've never, uh, I've never published uh, in, I've never published a journal. I, I don't understand journals as well as I, I guess I do books. So I don't try, I try not to write about journals. There are lots of people who know journal, know journal publishing much, much better than I do. Um, but, but I think that, there's also uh, there's a there's a realistic element in all this, and that is there are, at least at this stage there is still quite a limited number of writers who have the scientific knowledge and the writing skill who are able to speak to a general audience um, or even whatever a general educated audience is. I all, all these terms are, are pretty fuzzy. Uh, it's one of the reasons why. When uh, an author or an author who is a, a scientist is indeed able to write uh, and has the desire to do so, her or his work is of enormous value uh, to commercial value to publishers um, and will be the subject of uh, fierce competition in order to land uh, the book that can indeed uh, be one of the very few popular science, to use a phrase I'm not sure I believe in, popular science uh, uh, books that can reach uh, potentially, you know, a million readers. Um, I wanted to destabilize, I wanted to return to a point you, you made, Daniel, about the growth of specialization for, for people whose, whose lives are largely in the Anglophone world. Um, it, it is useful to remember that English professors, qua English professors, are, you know, have only been around for, you know, a century or so. Is There is no such, there is no centuries-long uh, tradition of being a professor of English. Um, we have the, the extraordinary in, um, uh, architecture of the German university system, uh, to thank for much of, of, of university life as it developed in North America. And we also have, I think, the, the, the contemporary problem 
of tending to believe our own mistakes. Uh, maybe this is a this is a global cultural issue, but uh, I, I know for myself, even though I, I was dean of humanities and social sciences at Cooper Union. I don't really believe in humanities and social sciences as a very useful distinction. I think it's, I think it, if it probably does more to confuse, it probably does more to confuse people in that they, they uh, segregate fields than it does to help people participating in those fields see that there is a common humanity that drives all of these inquiries. Uh, that is the thing that I think we we are at risk. We're always at risk of losing. Uh, we're we are all people writing about people, whatever our fields may be. Um, I am as a as an American working in in an Anglophone culture or an Anglophone publishing culture. I I, I look with um, a certain degree of envy at. <clears throat> Uh, different concepts, different conceptual gatherings. Um, in France, you have uh, les sciences humaines, and in Germany, you have Geisteswissenschaften. And there, uh, there are surely other um, other uh, uh, ways of describing disciplinary organizations in in other linguistics and linguistic and cultural uh, situations. Um, I, I bring this up merely because I I feel that. Books that we want to read are, all right, I'll, I'll say this, I haven't said this before, are conta- positively contaminated by other fields. That is that if I'm reading something by somebody who's a professor of f- French literature and she is writing a book about um, <clears throat> uh, race uh, in France and Algeria and she's going to be drawing upon politics and sociology and gender studies and any number of things that are outside of her field of, you know, the, the, the self-imposed border of, of, of her discipline, that will only make it a better and more interesting book and a richer one. But in order to do that, she's got to take risks. And this gets me to perhaps the biggest, uh, the ele- one of the elephants in the room. And maybe it's not the biggest elephant, but it's definitely one of them. Academics, All elephants and, are big. <laughs> I guess they are. I guess they are academics are Rick are risk aversive, which sounds really odd, but uh, disciplinary spe- self specification is a means of avoiding risks. Uh, it's only one of the many ways in which academics avoid risks. But I, the, this notion of contaminating your own work with other disciplines is a deliberate. Uh, it, it would be a deliberate. It's a deliberate provocation. It, it's an encouragement to get people to get outside of their own fields. It'll only make their own thinking better. Will it make them? Will it make my imagined French professor a better French professor? Maybe not a better French professor, but it may make that person uh, a richer intellectual. Uh, able to a, able to produce something that more people will be able to respond to and will also integrate the work of of one discipline into the larger project that the university uh, stands for it's also a recognition of how you talk about terminology, um, which I find really important. I mean, as you say, in, in German, they have also just simply the word Wissenschaft, or in French, they have the word science. And we we don't have a word that just covers thinking. <laughs> Even if you say research, people generally think of a laboratory. And uh, I think what this crossing boundaries recognizes and puts out in the open is 
a bit of what the novelist does when he or she writes uh, the novel and says, this is fiction, I'm lying, is basically this. Everyone is working outside of their discipline, necessarily. Even the physicists who are deep inside their equations and are out there looking at photographs, which to us could be either a new galaxy or it could be uh, some doctor's photograph of the inside of your body. We can't tell the difference. (laughs) They all have the terminology of metaphor at the heart of what they're doing. There is no word specifically for the different levels of the atom that doesn't rely on the language that they use to talk about it. So in other words, it's almost a recognition, as you say, as, 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 as I was saying with the novelist, that this is not true. The scientist who says that this is not just biology, this is not just physics, is the scientist, I think, who is perhaps taking their work most seriously. I love that. I love that. I, I, as you were speaking, I just reached across to my desk to pick up a book that I'm teaching um, uh, this month to, um, to my first year students, I, I, if, if I can, I, I hadn't planned to do this. Um, it's Ursula Le Guin, Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, um, which is, which is a work of science fiction. It's, that's not a, that's not a, a genre that I read in, uh, but I love teaching this book. And I, I, if I can, three sentences only from her introduction, which she wrote about a decade after the book came out. And it, it speaks to it speaks to one of these par- uh, some of the paradox that I think we're touching on. Le Guin writes, the artist deals with what cannot be said in words. The artist whose medium is fiction does this in words. The novelist says in words what cannot be said in words. <laughs> I, 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 that deserves a moment of silence. Good it, God. <laughs> it, man, oh man. She was so smart. And uh, presenting, this to, presenting this to a class of undergraduates who were, on one hand, I have young art students, and on the other hand, I have young, say, civil engineers. Uh, each of whom have to confront something sort of shocking in this in this uh, credo of Le Guin's. But it's also a reminder, I think, uh, perhaps we've strayed from the idea of getting it published, but maybe getting getting to an idea, getting to an idea is recognizing how our disciplines are an armature, but also offense. And how getting outside of that armature and outside of that fence may allow us to understand better what we thought we were getting into all this for to begin with, as well as a recognition that everything we're writing is a language-based construct, that the language we use is not accidental, uh, that it has uh, not only uh, denotations, but connotations, um, thinking about the ways in which ideas move across linguistic fields uh, is is not only fascinating but enormously important. And I think it ref- it turns back on uh, the differences among people. Uh, all of this is all of what I think I'm saying is that when one is writing as a scholar, one is also writing as a person. Um, that may sound slightly banal, and certainly in the in the aura of Ursula Le Guin, it sounds very banal. But um, but I want to you encourage... set yourself up for that one. <laughs> I did. I know it's okay. Uh, uh, it, the 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 work of scholarship is not taking place under a glass dome. 
if you think you're writing under a glass dome, you have to publish in the Journal of Glass Dome Studies. It's not where you want to bring your ideas out in terms of a book. People want to find, readers want to find people in their books. And uh, that, I think, is going to happen most productively uh, if one is willing to see risk as part of one's job. And then building that into, into one's project, into one's project design, and into the language we use to present the results of that research to the world. Um, getting it published is, again, as I said at the top, uh, it's a bit like a car repair manual for, for academics. With a, I don't have a car, so a car repair manual is a very theoretical object to me. But um, it's this is where this is where the brakes are. <laughs> this is why this is why you have to have a tune up. Um, this is why you rotate the tires. It's pretty much what you would need to know if you don't already know it, or if you needed to be reminded of of how editors think, how publishers think, and how editors and publishers hope that authors think. That's what I try to do in this project. And, and in other projects, I, I've, I've tried to undertake other things. The, the, the little book on revising a dissertation is, in a sense, a, a not, not quite a prequel to this, but it's a, it's a more specific drill down because so many scholars are, are, uh, are in, uh, invariably facing the difficulty of what do I do with it now that I've finished, finished my PhD. Um, I, I tend to recommend that and, and this book next as a way of familiarizing, uh, a way for a scholar to familiarize herself with basically, to use a term I, I always feel I have to put brackets around, best practice. But so many people have now used best practice within higher ed that um, I, I'm grudgingly willing to use it to describe what I've tried to do here. I'm always sure that a term has started to lose its meaning when it's adopted by Germans directly. So in a German sentence, to hear the words best practice is not unusual. <laughs> I, I see. In, in English? Right. They'll, they'll just say the words, you know, German, yeah. German, German, best practice, German, German. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, I'm glad you bring us back, back to the practicalities of the book because I, I, I shot for a bird's eye view. I think I got an orbital satellite view and we started reflecting on very big questions, um, which the book encourages. Yet the book remains, as I, I said in the beginning and as the, the subtitle announces a guide and uh, it, it will bring you through uh, many of the tough twists and turns of, of going, um, especially if you put it together with uh, your, your earlier book, uh, going from dissertation to book and to next book. Um, if we might uh, focus in on one thing uh, to give us a, a closer ground view of, of, of what happens in the books, uh, that would be uh, the question of editing and editors who seem to be play one of the more important roles also uh, as, as far as, uh, at least for direct contact with the author um, in, in a publishing house. I have this one sentence in front of me that um, speaks, I think, to at least part of an editor's interest. And it is the question that you ask early on again in the book. Why aren't we as serious about writing as we are about getting published? Now, I like that because I think that uh, at one point in the book, you name a number of the things that uh, editors are looking for. And obviously, you've said a number of them, the narrative, the idea that uh, there's a why for this, that there's an audience, that it fits into the publishing house's uh, philosophy. There is all that. But there is the, let's say, old-fashioned, wow, this is good. <laughs> this, this, this is written well. 
Um, and one of one of my problems uh, with that is it just seems like so many people don't either understand the value of that and also don't even know how to do it. And when you connect good writing with good thinking, which is, in my opinion, not a radical connection, um, you start to see that it's a bit of a pity that the editors don't have more say. If I look, if I might just say one last thing to prompt this, if I look at the history of style guides that are out there, very few of them stand up on the horizon. I think of several short sentences by Klinkenborg, or I think of The Sense of Style by Pinker. But after that, you have a sense that the style guides are a bit like the early dictionaries in the English language. I'm talking pre-Samuel uh, Johnson, the ones that sort of just clobbered together the same lists of the previous dictionary all the way back. <laughs> um, and it would be better if people really, I, this is my own opinion, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. It would be better if people really saw, thought, as you say, as serious about writing, as they think as seriously about their content and the publication process. I... I... Uh, I can sympathize with that response because, I, like you, I've read too much badly written stuff. And a lot of it is published badly written stuff. Uh, what, many, many very famous people don't write well. Uh, and I'm not going to name names. But uh, their ideas are, are so important uh, and so usable uh, that we work through their uh, rather heavy prose in order to extract uh, a concept or a set of tools um, that we can then use. Um, I, yeah, it, it's it's hard. It's hard to talk about this. I think, first of all, that there is a uh, of the last ten years or so, there has been a turn towards uh, um, writing about language and usage that is um, deliberately addressing the question of academics and how they write. Um, I'm thinking of Helen Sword's stylish academic writing, uh, but there are other, uh, I think there are other writers as well, and there are, works, there are books in the works I know about that uh, are trying to do for uh, academics what more general books have done. Uh, people still teach um, a Strunk and White, which was uh, in in the English language context. People teach Strunk and White, but that book was initially, initially conceptualized 100 years ago. Uh, I think we have very specific needs right now, but I don't, you know, I don't know whether style guides in and of themselves uh, can do more than show the way and encourage people. Um, <clears throat> one of the things, sorry, one of the things that that uh, an editor can do, um, how can I put this? An editor can give permission. And that's something that I've found many, many academics needing. It's not that they can't. No one's told them they could. That their uh, disciplinary structure has encouraged them to write as conservatively as possible, not necessarily conservatively in a political sense, but conservatively in, let's say, an epistemological sense, certainly in a communication sense. Be sure to suppress the self. Be sure to, that you don't give you don't give away any anything personal. Be sure that you have uh, not made radical radical moves. Do not bring in that contaminating work outside of your discipline. Um, I don't have any ind particular individual in mind, but it is my sense that that there is a conserv the conservative default of academia 
is to reproduce uh, the safest versions of work in your field. That's been changing for quite a while, but the question of whether it changes fast enough and in all the directions it needs to is another matter. Academics would, they would think better on the page if they wrote better. But I do think that the quality of academic writing has improved a great deal in the last 20 years and that there are a lot of ways in which academics understand the opportunities uh, of their academic um, jobs, uh, allowing them to produce things um, that can be read by a variety of, a variety of readers. Um, I'm thinking, though, that behind your question might be a different question, maybe not one you're asking, but one that I'm going I'm to put, and that is, how do we get universities to see the value of training academics, uh, training their scholars and their staffs, as well as their students in writing. Uh, it would be shocking to turn to a university president and say, we'd like to set up a program that helps teachers and professors write better. And yet, if that question were asked, would it not be possible to open up a conversation about uh, teaching and learning uh, and writing as a coordinated effort that goes to the heart of communication? And I, you know, scholarly communication is super important, but scholarly communication is a subset of other kinds of communication, global, interpersonal, and so forth. Um, uh, I, I couldn't agree more that academics need to write better. I think they are writing better, but they need to be have both the they need to have both the facilities within their institutions. Those facilities have to be resourced, and they have to be encouraged to take risk within the structures of their own disciplinary formations. What would you say is an editor's view of risk? Because I well, entirely I entirely agree that uh, less risk averseness amongst researchers is going to bring better research. I mean, I, I, I completely believe in that. But what would be the editor's view here? The editor is the editor. It, de- it depends on what kind of an editor we're talking about. Editor can mean lots of things. It can mean a copy editor who's. It can mean the acquisitions editor or the commissioning editor, and or, or in, in some in, in some institutions they're called procurement editors, which sounds slightly sordid to me. But um, the the editor who is responsible for bringing the project into the house. That editor may do uh, a once-over, may spend some time making 35,000-foot observations about the project. There might be, uh, there will be a cop, in most cases, there will be a copy editor whose job will be to uh, style the work for, um, for publication and also to fix all the fiddly little bits and raise questions that need to be solved by the author. But they're not going to be rewriting the work. Um, a very long generation ago, one can imagine uh, a publishing house uh, that had uh, an obligation for an editor to produce a handful of books a year and work very carefully with the author on every sentence. Well, I think that's probably more fiction. I probably, that was probably always fictional. And we like to imagine that that's the way it once was and is not now. It certainly is not that way now. Um, I've known editors who were responsible for shepherding through publication as many as 50 books in the course of a year. And if you think about that, it's just even just reading 50 manuscripts and really getting through them in the course of a year is, an, is, a, is a big burden. 
If you add to that the possibility, the the responsibility to have exchanges with the authors, to to rebuild, to cut, to add, to suggest further further uh, possibilities, it's it's simply not possible to, for a single editor to do that. So some editors are going to work more like traffic cops, and other editors are going to be deeply engaged with their work, but still be limited by the amount of time they can have access to that work. Um, Editors are likely to, I don't know whether I put it this way before, I think editors probably exert their agency most directly at the moment when they select a project. Whether they have time to do rewriting, rebuilding, it would seem to be very rarely the case. And when they do, it'll be because they found something that they thought was that rare, that precious gem that, that, that will repay all that work. Um, this will vary from house to house. It will vary from economic situation to economic situation. It will also vary from discipline to discipline. But I don't know that editors are going to uh, have much time to do to do anything substantive with most manuscripts, and that in turn puts the work back on the author. Um, just to close this on on risk, uh, I've never known an editor who wasn't interested in the risk that her or his authors would might be taking in a project. Risks are the beginning of excitement about what makes a book unique. And that in turn makes it possible to go to the marketing department, to go to the salespeople and say, I've got a book on X. We published books on X before, but this one makes this big move. Listen to this. That's, that becomes a, an internal sales pitch, and then, an, and then it becomes a handle with which you can present a book to the outside world and really pique people's curiosity. So as you're saying then, the actual editing, which probably jumps up in people's minds first when they hear the word, is best done by the author, him or herself. I think that's frequently the case. I mean, it's always the case. The author is responsible for the text. No matter how many editors have looked at your work, if your work goes out into, into, uh, into the public sphere and Daniel Shea's name is on the, is on the front, uh, Daniel Shea will be held responsible for what's inside. And 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 I think that's 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 how you want it. That's how it should be. There mm-hmm. are times when an editor at a publishing house might say to an author, "This is great. I'm willing to take it to a next stage, but I need you to engage a developmental editor because I don't have the resources to do that. You've got some real. You've got gold here, but." <clears throat> I'd like you to take your 740-page manuscript uh, on on uh, the 18th Brumaire and uh, to uh, uh, figure out what you want to say, cut out the material that is not going to be uh, essential, and then position the elements so the author, so that the reader rather is immediately engaged and will be held through to the end of the book. It would be nice if editors had all the time to do that, but because of the economic pressures upon publishers, that's not what editors, most editors are going to be able to do. So in some cases, and this is not always, this is doesn't happen a lot, but some cases an editor might turn around to an author and say, why don't you work with the developmental editor first and then bring it back to us and we'll see what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that, uh, as you're saying, the editor, uh, since it's the moment of selection that is sort of the peak moment for, for an editor, would you say that 
it makes sense for a scholar to bring early stage projects uh, into the line into the eyesight of editors who seem also according to um, the house that they're in, the work that they've done, that, that would make sense? Do you think that editors are going to be interested in that sort of thing? That, that's a key question. And it's one that uh, I t- do talk about in, in getting it published. And in each of the editions, that's been a, that's been a crucial question. Um, certainly, <clears throat> a publisher's two tasks are selection and dissemination. And selection is super important. You know, you want your book to be published by the best publisher who can publish that book. What does that mean? In many cases, it means you want to be with a certain cohort of authors because they help to their presence and your presence together help authenticate a field. Being published by famous author X makes your book look as if it belongs in that club. So selection is not not just a matter of saying, oh, that one's good, that one's good. There are... <clears throat> There were sort of micropolitics involved in that, and I don't mean that in, in any sort of um, a conspiratorial way, but inevitably books will align themselves in certain patches, and you'll say, oh, I'm on that very theoretical list in political theory, a, a, a very strong list in political theory, uh, rather than being the only book on political theory at another house. Um you asked me a question, and now I yeah, it was just about how early. Um, oh yes, the, the, a scholar the might want to right. Yeah, the timing, right? I I, I have a I have a uh, an answer that I've been giving for a long time, and that is you want to reach out to a publisher when you're ready to act, and by that I mean the worst thing to do is to write a letter to a publisher saying I'm working on this project, I've done one chapter. Um, are you, uh, are you interested in, um, in, in, maybe you send two chapters and you say, are, are you, are you interested in it? The editor writes back and says, yes, I am. And then you go silent. And then a year later you finish the manuscript and you contact the publisher and you say, oh, I, I've done it now. As I, the analogy I give is it's like asking for a date and then getting back to the, your date a year later saying, okay, I'm ready now. Uh, it's it's social relations just don't work that way um the 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 certain publishing houses are going to say we'll only look at a completed manuscript frankly i think that is that's a reflection on their workload their pro their internal process and the fact that certain fields are so have such small markets that there is no real reason for the publisher to take uh, the risk of committing to a project early or even spending editorial time on a project before the whole thing is done. So most publishers will have some uh, some direction, instructions about this on their websites. If you've got something that's really great or something that is groundbreaking or something that is time dated, and these are three really different categories, it's okay to write early, but you need to be able to act immediately, get a response. So you send in a chapter and a proposal and your CV, and you've done this electronically. And a week later, you get a, a note back saying, this is fantastic. When can we see more? You, you really need to know when that's going to be. Ideally, you have most of it in draft, or you know you can finish this thing up in a couple of months. Um, publishers tend to want to make commitments in advance only when they think that their own risk is being minimized, They're, that the author is a famous name, they need to compete, and they want to make a commitment early. They've lucked upon, and this is, I think, all editors' favorite thing, 
the first book by somebody completely fabulous who nobody else knows about. I mean, that's that's one of the things that editors dream about having happen. Um, but by and large, you want to reach out when you have most of that manuscript in very, very good shape, and you know when you're going to finish it. I, I'm reluctant to give you the, 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 the length of time to completion, because I've probably written about it. And I have had the experience of having someone say at one of my talks, you just said eight weeks, but in your book, you said six weeks. And so it's, it's that kind, it's that kind I'm of- I'm not going to very, pin you down to days. <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of very specific thing where I, 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 I you know, I, I realize that I have said one quite specific, um, quite specific interval. But the point is that you need to know how to finish your own project, when you can finish your own project, and when you would be able to send a finished version of it to a publisher before you contact any publisher, even at a preliminary stage. There um, are so many things that occur to me in the book. As we've said before, there are so many practical aspects of it. And I would naturally have followed up now with the question of, um, and what about after the work, where you give an entire chapter to how do you promote um, but before I perhaps uh, stretch uh, listeners or your own um, endurance or patience, there is one interesting thing at the very end of the book where you tell us about the books to keep at your elbow while you write. <laughs> and um, I think that might be a nice coda to all of the uh, different aspects of uh, what we've been uh, saying in Getting It Published, the book by uh, William Germano. And uh, some of these are just perfect. A dictionary. <laughs> I think every fifth, sixth grade English teacher is, 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 is saying yay and shouting hurrah at that one. A, a manual of style, the one that belongs to your field. You mentioned Chicago Manual of Style, which uh, covers many fields and is also one of the more precise that's out there. Um, here we go. A great book in your field. Yeah? There's got to be something out there that has inspired you. And I know that's the case for everyone. And this one, this one I love, I, I'm going to say it, a damn good piece of contemporary writing. <laughs> um, is there something you could tell us about that choice, number four? I, you know, I, I think that academics read lots of stuff and they think that they're not supposed to rely upon that other stuff. Uh, any of the great uh, magazines, these days there are fantastic works that are published only online. I think we constantly as academics need a refresher, both for our brains and our prose, that we're likely to believe that complex syntax and a highly referential, um, a highly referential texture is the only way to write. We know that's not the case. We pick up magazines, we read the newspapers, we, we with horror probably, and we read, uh, we read blogs uh, by all sorts of, you know, all, from all sorts of, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, authors. It's important to remember that there's a writing world outside of one's office and beyond one's desk. We know this instinctively. <clears throat> I think having something that's great next to you is, even if it's a piece of fiction, in fact, very, very often is exactly that. Uh, what's sitting on my sitting on my desk right now? I mentioned Le Guin. <clears throat> I haven't even read it yet, but I just bought a copy of uh, The Old Drift by Namwali Serpel. Um, I got <clears throat> Kwame Anthony Appiah's The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. Uh, <clears throat> Just a couple of things I can reach from from this table to that desk. Things that I've just dipped into and gotten the last week. Um, <clears throat> these are good writers. Uh, they're not in my field. I'm not a novelist. 
I'm not a um, <clears throat> I'm not a philosopher, and I'm certainly not a philosopher who's working on the enormous complexity of questions of race. But having these things that are not me are a reminder that the book is also not me, uh, and my readers are not me. Not meanness, it seems to me, is utterly crucial to being a successful scholar and successful writer. And uh, <clears throat> we need to be reminded of this over and over again. It's, it's a lesson that teachers work with, uh, teachers who are working with students uh, uh, gently or forcefully <clears throat> help students understand both uh, the place of me and the place of not me uh, in the self and also for, for authors in writing their own work. There's your discipline and there's also your discipline and your not discipline, the discipline outside of your discipline. Keep the windows open. Look at stuff that's not yours. Uh, you need reality checks. Maybe academics need reality checks even more than non-academics do. <laughs> I sort I often feel that <clears throat> the myth I think of that's the a idea. wonderful. I think that's a wonderful new take on objectivity. <laughs> if you follow my li- line I of do. thought, yeah. I do. Um, and I, and I totally agree with you. I, I think that that is, uh, which is why I really wanted to make sure I brought in book number four, because <laughs> when I saw that, I thought, wow, yes, exactly. <laughs> of course, book number five is getting it published itself, <laughs> which you very modestly say you can throw away when you've learned everything in it. But I think it will take readers a lot longer and they'll need it more than, uh, than you portray it to be. Um, nonetheless, uh, Bill, you've been uh, very generous with your time to us, and we've had a wonderful conversation. I would just be interested if you could maybe give us a quick view as to what you're actually doing at the moment. Ah, oh, the moment, the moment. Well, we're still working within the, the COVID dispensation, so everything takes place uh, at my desk, all my teaching and my writing. Um, I'm Finishing up a book, which I, I this would be the first time it's publicly announced, um, or or it's or publicly semi-announced. Uh, it's a book I'm doing with Chicago uh, in the fall of 2021, and it's about revising writing. Uh, it's primarily for academics, but it's I think it's its audience is very much the audience of getting it published. It's for scholars and anyone serious about serious books, but I think it's also maybe broader than that as well. It's for people who take seriously the work of revising writing. It's so hard to talk about revision. It's so hard to write about revision. The title of the book is On Revision, The Only Writing That Counts. And in it, I try to give people tools for thinking about the utterly essential work of revising writing. And that is, that's the next project. Okay. Sounds fascinating and sounds like uh, something that's uh, very interesting for our listeners in some future day, maybe. Um, Uh, Great. Thank you very much. Uh, That is William Germano and his book, Getting It Published, A Guide for Scholars and Anyone Else Serious About Serious Books is... Uh, been published in its third edition with the University of Chicago Press in 2016. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bill. Goodbye. Thanks so much, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Goodbye until next time.